This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Upland Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. On this episode of the show, we talk bird dog development with Ryan Mulcahy of Born to Run Kennels. Welcome back to the show for episode number 103. Project Upland Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. And right now, you can use the promo code DAD, D-A-D, to save 30% on your Onyx Hunt subscription, even better than our normal Project Upland code. Check out Onyx Hunt today and use the promo code DAD to save 30% until Father's Day. The Project Upland Podcast is also brought to you by Yukonuba Sporting Dog, makers of premium performance dog food that is scientifically formulated for peak nutritional performance for our canine athletes. Whether they are hunting, training in the off-season, or competing hard, Yukonuba gives them the nutrition they need to maintain that peak level of performance year-round. And by CZ USA Shotguns, shotguns designed with the Upland Hunter in mind, from the Bob White and Sharptail side-by-sides to the Upland Ultralight and Wing Shooter Elite over and unders. They've got pumps, they've got semi-autos. CZ USA has a shotgun for you. 
And coming up next week, we've got a big announcement regarding a new partnership and a new project that I think you're going to be interested in with CZ USA. Until then, head over to cz-usa.com to check out all their shotguns. And finally, buy Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomold design, frame steel door, everything you and your dog need in a kennel for a safe and successful hunting trip. Head over to dakota283.com and use the promo code PU20 to save 20% from Dakota 283. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway is Ryan C. Ryan shared the Project Upland podcast with his Facebook friends. For that, we thank him. Project Upland t-shirt headed his way very soon. Anybody listening could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you have to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. You can do that by leaving us a rating, leave us a review in your podcast app, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us some feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, quick little plug for some friends out there. They sent me three bags of a brand new blend of coffee from Gundog Grind. They sent me the English Setter blend. Pretty darn good coffee. I've been enjoying it daily. In fact, I'm even enjoying it as I record this podcast intro right now. It tastes good. The English Setter blend from Gundog Grind. They're a new company. They're just getting started. Go check them out on Facebook at Gundog Grind. All right, with that said, we're jumping into today's episode. An excellent conversation with Ryan Mulcahy of Born to Run Kennels, podcast I've been meaning to do for quite a while. Ryan and I have kept in touch over the years talking bird dog development, as that is something he is extremely passionate about. And with a new puppy on the way, I was eager to have this conversation with Ryan and talk about some of the things that he looks for and works on as he's developing his own bird dogs and those of his clients. Ryan is a wealth of knowledge. He's a humble guy. He references his mentors and the people that he's learned from often, which is something I very much appreciate about Ryan. We had a great conversation talking all things bird dog development. So with that said, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Project Upland podcast of Born to Run Kennels, Ryan Mulcahy. Right, Ryan Mulcahy of Born to Run Kennels. Thanks for joining us on the Project Up podcast today, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to have you on the show. It's been a long time coming. We actually tried to we tried to connect a couple weeks ago when you were cruising through my neck of the woods. It didn't didn't work out with my schedule, so we're we're talking remote today, but that's all right. I've got you face to face here on the Squadcast app and <laughs> we're going to have some fun chatting about bird dogs today. Where, uh, where are we talking to you from, Ryan? Uh, I'm in Winifred, Montana, um, in the local tavern. Uh, it's, it's the only place I get Wi-Fi and can use my cell phone or anything like that. So so you got a built-in excuse to stop by the tavern. Yeah, yeah. The funny thing <laughs> is uh, I don't really drink much anymore. So not that I ever did, but I just don't drink much to begin with. And uh, yeah. um, But I, I have plenty of uh, – this is my – my go-to is just soda. <laughs> so I'm one of those people. Brian showed me a Pepsi cup. What are you drinking in there, though? Pepsi or no? Uh, yeah, for right now, it's Pepsi. I, All right. You know, whatever they, uh, they've got, either Pepsi or Coke or whatever. That's usually my drink. That's your so, drink of choice. Yeah. What's, 
is it hot out there right now? What's the temperature like? Yeah, today's hot. It's 90 degrees, so wow. um, it, it kind of came on later uh, this morning. So I got up, got some dogs roaded that needed to be roaded, and, um, and then went to doing yard work with a lot of dogs. So right now, that's kind of um, in the first two weeks that I'm up here, a lot of the things that I'm doing is kind of making um, pets back into dogs. <laughs> Sure. um, You know, getting them to where they want to learn and they can learn, Um, and so we're we're essentially doing that right now. That we're still in the first two weeks of uh, summer camp, and um, and then once I'm done with this two month block of summer camp, dogs go home, and within uh, a month they're they're right into their hunting season. So okay. um, But the way that I have it set up to be able to use the property up here is I have two months for my, uh, my clients. And then, um, I work for a gentleman out of Texas and he, uh, um, owns the ranch up here and, um, his dogs come in, uh, August 1st. Okay. So it's basically like I drive dogs from here back to Boise and then turn around and come right back here. And then I just work for another month plus. Okay. Um, and then maybe some guiding in South Dakota this year or whatever have you. I don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah. Um, I had just heard you on, you've been on Travis Warren's Upchucker podcast a time or two. Yeah. And I heard you recently, you were talking about, you spent the last season down in Texas. What was the yeah. name of the ranch that you were at down uh, there? The Mariposa. Um, okay. And it, it's kind of in um, the heart of South Texas quail country. And, um, it, we're pretty close to the King Ranch, which most people know, um, okay. and then we're pretty close to the Kennedy Ranch, which I have some good friends over on that. That actually, the one in particular, got me the job on the Mariposa. Okay. So. And you'll be hit, you'll be heading back down there again next year. Yeah. So the goal is to have basically like three camps throughout the year, um, and those will be. It, it'll basically be like two months in South Texas from. Um, like say January and February, and then driving up to um, Boise, and then uh, for let's see, March, March and April would be my spring camp, and then um, going into summer camp. But most of the stuff that we get done, like yard work wise and um, kind of teaching concepts, is done in the summer. Um, it's kind of the best time for it. You're, you're really not. Um, trying to make major gains on wild uh, you can't really do it on wild birds um, right uh, legally and, uh, yeah. and i don't like being in and around that stuff at that time of the year so yeah um uh you're just asking for problems so yeah we we run everything around that and um yeah it, it's pretty fun so it, it keeps me on the go and it, it keeps me uh um oh I'm trying to build a home base, but I haven't been able to do it yet. <laughs> yeah, so. you're, you're kind of vagabondish right now. Yeah, and it, it, it wears on you, I'll tell you that much. But um, yeah. I'm trying to just make sure that when I'm on the road that I'm getting rest and uh, taking more time for myself than I used to. Um, otherwise, I won't be doing this. <laughs> I, I, You know, you just can't do it if you run ragged all the time. So Yeah, absolutely right, man. Yeah, you don't take care of yourself. You're not going to be taking care of the dogs as well as you could be. Yeah, so. exactly. 
So again, I mentioned you'd been on Travis's podcast and I would definitely encourage people to go listen to the episodes over there on Upchucker. There was one a few years ago where you really kind of hit the intro and the high level stuff, talked about your background. And then I think you did one like within the last year that was more like a question and answer training one. Yeah, that was, uh, I think during the spring when I got back from Texas. Yeah. So definitely folks can go check out that, you know, and for everybody that hasn't heard those, we're going to cover your background just, you know, lightly at kind of a high level. Tell me about how you got into bird dogs and how you, how born to, born to run kennels came to be and kind of how you got to where you're at today. Okay. Uh, so I'll say the, uh, the so-called kennel is still building. Um, but it's, um, it all started, uh, three or four years old. Uh, my dad carrying me through the woods at night and, uh, working coon hounds. Um, and we, <laughs> I, I tell these stories. Uh, we used to have a hay field, an alfalfa field, right behind our house, and we'd uh, we'd bale it every summer. And um, we used to go and live catch coon during the summer for our young dogs. And that's kind of how everything started. Was working puppies, and Dad would allow me to work puppies. And then during the night, when he'd go and work dogs, um, if it wasn't if I didn't have to be in bed by a certain time, he'd take me. And so. Um, <laughs> He, he outfitted me with, you know, my own chaps and my own uh, headlamp and all that stuff. And, I mean, he, he had me pretty well hooked on the, uh, on the hounds. And I, I'd go to a lot of his uh, um, competitions and stuff. He ran the, the Coon Club, which was for houndsmen out back home. And he used to run some championships where I think one of them drew over 100 dogs in one of those championships. Um, and so it, it was a pretty big deal with us. Um, and that's how it started. Uh, but kind of back to when we would work puppies in the summertime, we had our old hay wagon and the neighbor kids from down the road used to show up and watch me, me and dad work with a, a, what they call a roll cage. And we'd have a coon in it and we'd have like five or six puppies just baying on it and just, put, <laughs> you know, going crazy on it. And so I, I think everything started from that. And then um, my grandfather and my uncle on my mom's side, um, so my mom's father and her brother took me uh, pheasant hunting, which and grouse hunting, which our pheasant aren't like like out here. Um, they're put and shoot birds. That, yep. You know, and you're you're lines. talking back in PA. Yeah, yeah. back in Pennsylvania. Um, and so we'd go and do that, but then we'd get into the grouse, and I I actually I've never killed a rough grouse back back <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I should say. Sure. Um, yeah. I have in Idaho, um, but I've never back there it, and. We weren't running uh, pointers back then, um, and it, and I wasn't a good enough shot. So, um, but when I was back home at one point um, before moving west the last time here, um, I worked a lot on on rough grouse and woodcock, um, really building efficiency with the the pointers that I had at that time, and uh, and I still have one of them. So, um, yeah. I don't, um, and then the born to run side of it. Um, so athletics have always been a pretty big outlet for us. Um, and growing up being out of Pennsylvania, um, I started off with wrestling and I really just, I like that wrestler's mentality and being able to push. And while I transitioned over to running, uh, at a certain age and, um, it just took off from there. So I, I actually, I coached Division One for a very brief time, and I coached professionally uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona, and um, just 
really enjoyed coaching and working with athletes, and so that was all after the little bit that I ran in Division Three. Um, so that compiled with Springsteen's music is the Born to Run side of things. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it just I, I figure if I'm going to do this, I might as well make it fun and um, things like that kind of make it joyful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's so funny, man. I I mean, I listen to podcasts a lot. I always have, and I. You know, if you would have asked me to describe your background like that, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But hearing you tell that story, it it brought me back to when I was. I, I remember exactly where I was driving in the truck. I was going down to do a. I was actually doing a wing shooting lesson with a guy, and I was driving down listening to you talk to Travis. And I remember you talking about the coon hounds and you're running and wrestling and all that stuff. It's just just funny how that time and place gets put in there. Yeah. So today i mean you primarily work with pointers those are your own dogs you train other do you do you only train pointing dogs uh i only train pointing dogs okay uh i only own pointer um i i've said this uh i'll i'll get a setter when jerry coulter gives it to me um um, but yeah yeah i i work any pointing breed and in fact it actually when i get to work other breeds it kind of um, makes me have to think more. So you have sure. to think in a different light because it, uh, those animals, um, they have different genetics, so they think differently a lot of times. So Yeah, so that's making you a more well-rounded trainer, giving you more exposure to other dogs, different yeah. breeds. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So. You, I mean, you definitely, and I can, you can sense it based on, you, with that early exposure with the Kunans, you have, a, you have an interest in developing animals i mean in the way that you talk about dogs i mean you refer to them as animals the way that you talk about animal behavior i mean that's a that's a big interest of yours right yeah um it's the same as working with a uh an athlete or a student um i I actually worked in special with special needs students for a few years um in the boise school district and i i really enjoyed that as well so it's um I just enjoy like whether it's working with an athlete or just or an animal, um, just trying to get um, progress um, and comprehension. So, so the the last dot that I want to connect before we kind of move on, we're we're going to talk about puppies a lot today for a number of reasons. But you had that that early exposure to dogs, coon hunting dogs, coon hounds, and then you had exposure to hunting with your family, and you didn't have pointers. What? What was it that led you into the training and developing of pointing dogs? Was there was there this ultimate crossroads that kind of put you there? Yeah. Um, so my great grandfather, I, I remember going to his, my mom's grandfather. Um, I'd go over to his place every once in a while when I was a kid, and um, I remember seeing a kennel full of like bird dogs and hounds. That's he had anything for a different application so i remember seeing a weimariner over there one time and then he had a couple britneys and he had some good britneys um that they were good grouse dogs and um so that that was kind of a always in the back of my head and um then when i got done with college and i I always told my dad i said i want to get a bird dog and um, he just told me it was kind of a weird spot in life, and he just told me, you know, please wait. And once you're settled a little bit more, he said, I'll buy you your dog. Um, he goes, but I want you to get a started dog. So at that point, I was I was so much on like German short hairs that I was like, oh, this is the end. I'll be all breed. <laughs> and um, and so I went and looked at a couple short hairs, and 
and I was living in Flagstaff at the time and and then I drove all the way down to southern Arizona and looked at this pointer kennel and um I didn't know what the L Hugh bloodline was I didn't know any of that stuff and I just yeah. saw dog point and you know it's like the initial reaction that everybody talks about is like blows your mind a little bit right it, yeah. it just yeah kind of like the world stops and that was the uh I saw the pointer and I was like yeah this is it you know I'm not getting a short hair um and so yeah that was kind of the the epiphany and then I, I I met this guy on Thanksgiving day in Flagstaff to go training I had gotten his contact through a friend and I can't remember who gave it to me but I I called him and he says uh he says yeah he goes um what are you doing on Thanksgiving? I said, well, nothing. You know, I don't have any family out here. He goes, all right, meet me at this exit on Interstate 40. So I did. And his name was Jim Schultz. And Jim um, Jim had the APC National Champion. I um, uh, can't remember what that dog's name was, but he was what by, is, What's APC? APC is the AKC National Championship for Pointers. Okay. And so okay. he, he won that the one year they had it up in Nebraska. And I, I want to say it was like 2006. He won it um, with a dog he called Traveler. Um, and I'm trying to remember what Traveler's um, paper name was. But he was a double-bred uh, Miller's True Spirit dog. So um, w- what it was was Jim started, he, he always worked uh, short hairs. And then he started training for the public. And he took on two pointers out of the Phoenix area. And it was when Arizona had a really good stock of Miller bred dogs because of Tritronics. Um, they'd go back to Kentucky and they were having Farrell go through all the electronics and stuff. So, um, and then they would bring all these Miller dogs back to, uh, to Arizona. So he, he took these two dogs in for training and he liked them so much he bought them. And, um, and then he uh, put a championship on the mail and then the female was a tremendous wild bird dog for him in southern Arizona. And he uh, ended up breeding him and took a pup out of that. And he won a national, well, the APC national with him. And I think he won uh, some American field championships with him. And then he won, um, he started getting rock acre dogs. Um, and he started winning with them as well. They were not Blackhawk bred. They were um, out of Rock Acre Dream Girl, which I believe Rick Peterson owned, and maybe Sean Kinkler handled. I'm not. I'm not positive on that. But she, Rock Acre Dream Girl, was uh, I think five or six time champion. So, but yeah. So Jim Schultz was a. Uh, he pulled out a few dogs one day um, on Thanksgiving that day and showed me what they did on you know just in a training session. And I watched a dog be steady to wing and shot, and. You know, just with an incredible style, and um, and he goes, yeah, she she's won three championships, and and he said she's a real enjoyable dog to run. So, um, but I watched that, and I was like, that that's, that's what I it. Want. Yeah, yeah, it was. And so I got to be around uh, Jim a lot, and uh, he would take me to championships and different trials, and either. You know, I might run a dog, but I just enjoyed being there. And then I would hunt my dogs a lot when I had the time. So, yeah, yeah, that's cool. It's just you. I mean, you never really know, right? Like you were you were three, four years old going for hikes with with your dad in the in the woods at night, and yeah. fast forward a little bit, and it's pointers down in Arizona, and here you are today. It's just, yeah, it's kind of 
kind of a whirlwind when you look back on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but so when you when you got that exposure, you know, you you knew you wanted a bird dog, and you were kind of you were thinking for yourself at that point. You wanted to get into bird dogs and train bird dogs. Um, I guess I don't want to I don't want to spend too much time on this, but like, was there was there further development? after that where you, you know you got into these dogs and then all of a sudden you you started to think i want to do this for other people you know i really like the development of bird dogs is what i really want to do so i had um a nice guy down in uh arizona named tommy choppa tommy had put a championship on one of his dogs and um and he gave him to me i mean blatant like just gave him to me he says uh he goes around i don't have the time to to work and then he's like i don't want him sitting at home so he gave me him, and then he gave me um, a female named Ellie. And Ellie, Ellie was uh, really raw, she, and I mean by that I mean she um, she was fairly she was more brawn than brain. Um, okay. She had a lot of power, and just and I say it like sometimes you go to these field trials and you see dogs that are extremely hyped up. She was kind of one of those. She didn't really use her between her ears as much at that sure. point in life. Um, she was very excitable and enthusiastic. Um, and then Duke was, Duke was very intelligent. He was uh, a little conniving. And, uh, <laughs> well, I had already bought a pup, um, which was Rue. And, and Rue was young, and, uh, and I was developing him, you know, just for... I, I, if I stayed in Flagstaff, I was going to continue working dogs with Jim. Um, so it was just... I believe in hunting the dog, so I was working Rue and trying to develop him, and then I sent Duke back to Tommy because I, I just didn't didn't really like his personality. Um, and so I had Ellie and I had Rue, and then I bought Patch, and I just got caught up in the, the development of them and, and trying to make them the best that they could be, not what I wanted them to be, if that makes any sense. And... And so kind of fast forward, um, I moved around a bit and, uh, I never, even when I moved to Boise, it was never with the intention of training for the public. Um, and it, it, I kind of got between a rock and a hard place. And then, um, I sold patch, um, to Mitch Hurt and Mitch is the one that came to me a year later and he says hey would you like to come to my home uh, for the summer and train dogs and I said yeah you know I'd be interested in that and he goes well he basically had a lineup of people that um, to send dogs to me so I mean he set everything up gotcha um, and and thankfully he did because I, I was on the verge of having to move back to Pennsylvania I didn't have any finances and um so uh, that was what kickstarted it, and I enjoyed it, and have continued to do that. Um, so this is summer three, I guess, of doing that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you kind of got to, to yeah. this point now. Yeah. Kind of a long story, I know. But <laughs> well, no, I mean, and again, you, you've you've talked about it, you know, on on some of the other shows, and I didn't want to cover too much of it, but it is. It's always, I always personally find it interesting to see how people kind of find their you know, find their way to where they're at. So how many, how many dogs do you own personally right now? Um, eight. I, um, I own eight personally. Um, and I, I really enjoy my dogs. Um, my, my personal string, I really enjoy their, their personalities. Um, 
it's not always about the personality, but in order for me to keep them, I better like them. Um, we better yeah. mesh. Um, otherwise, it, we're not going to do good for each other. And it's the same like coach and athlete type of relationship. That's what we're in. So, um, and yeah, I've got eight right now. Now that includes, um, I've got four of them that are a year old and under, and I mean barely a year old. Um, okay. And um, I think I've got some good ones coming up. So, um, pretty excited about that. And fingers crossed, uh, in the next few days, we'll get a tie for a breeding. Um, uh, and I'm doing an in house breeding with this. Um, so, will that be your first, or have you done some of that already? Um, well, I lost my litter this past year, um, or we lost it uh, with, with Sage. Uh, I bred her to a dog um, uh, that Sonny Peekerts has on his string. And it's a, one of his best dogs, and um, she, uh, I guess, had eight pups in her originally, and then they slowly just died off, and then we had um, two left that were fully formed and died inside of her. So, damn. Uh, but thankfully, um, she was safe, you know. And well, right. It, it's tough though. Like my my females get worked so hard um, compared to the typical ones that are bred. Um, they they work as hard or harder than any male on my string and when we're down in mariposa it's i rely on them because they're all business on the ground and they have to be so yeah and so the the primary purpose of your own personal dogs is is obviously to continue further develop yourself as a trainer and then your guiding string right yeah and i would not to like bring it out on him uh, but i talked to jerry a lot and um, I like his model of things where everything is basically derived from his string. And he yeah. can always kind of, I call it importing, but he can always bring in other blood. Sure. And I, I really, um, I, I, I would like to be able to go that way in a few years. Because um, he and I talk quite a bit. Um, he, he's helped me out tremendously. And cool. Um, it's just there's not enough people that are breeding that are actually working these dogs hard on wild birds. Sure. And yep. it's seeing development. Now they're training these dogs, and, and I get a lot of dogs in that are from bloodlines that are pure training dogs. you got to put it in their head. Um, that's my least favorite thing to do. It, it is because um, it's hard. <laughs> it's yeah. you, you have to be in a yard. You have to be in a controlled setting, and that's, that's boring as hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it is it's just like yeah. and then you're constantly coming back and forth and it's like you're um so the dogs on my string i have to really like them and if they're that type of dog it's probably not going to work for me or yeah. get them to a point where you have them where they're going to um, stay put together and then get them placed where they're going to um be a real utility animal for the, yeah. for the person so um yeah uh-huh. Yeah, I guess that's that's one thing that I think I don't know that it it makes you unique, but I kind of knew this about you. I mean, you you run your dogs on wild birds a lot as much as possible throughout yeah. the whole year, and I know that's a that's a really a core component to developing your dogs. Yeah, um, and they they uh, reveal a lot. Um, so like my older dogs, um, they get worked a lot when we're in Texas. But they actually don't get work that much when we're up here. Like once a week on wild birds, that's all I like to run my personal string. Um, now, if it's a younger dog, you kind of, and you're trying to get things accomplished, then it's a hair different. But 
the so stock, more volume. Yeah, but the stock that I'm getting things out of, um, I don't have to overwork them. And and this is uh, this comes from Frank Lanasa. Um, I mean, Frank's Frank treats me so well. He's one of my favorite people, and he's a great mentor of mine. But um, these dogs wake upright, and that's what he says a lot about um, is is many time champion true confidence. Um, he says Bob Bob wakes upright, right? and you go into his kennel and you see him, and you, you know what he is, like you know what he is. And he's happy, he's joyful, and he wants to work, and he wants to please you. And uh, he's not black-hearted, and that's probably his knock because he's not extreme. Um, and he's one of the most enjoyable dogs to just hang out with. And so a lot of my stock comes from Frank, and they, uh, they wake up right. They wake up mentally level. And if you think about, like, all of them are athletes, right? Yep. If they're not waking up right, and, and we all go through this every once in a while, it's like yeah. if we don't wake up right, it, it's tough. Well, that's that's essentially um, that's a genetic issue. If if we're not waking up right, it's different. But with these dogs, if they're not consistently maintaining and taking care of themselves and waking up right, then there's probably something there genetically that people don't talk about. Yeah, they don't have the same. Uh same self-deprecating behaviors as we, as we do, right. you know, so don't you can, you can read into it more with a dog, I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, they get confined. So like whether that's, uh, in a kennel or, or in the house or whatever, their life's a little more simple than ours. And so yes. they, if they're not, if they're not all there mentally, then, uh, um, you can find out pretty quick. You got a lot fewer variables to weed through, you know, yes. to kind of analyze that. Exactly, exactly. It doesn't mean that they can't be um, a great animal. It's just you may have to work them more. And honestly, for my string, I, I don't have the patience for it. Um, so if it's if I'm working a client dog that I've got to get through some obstacles with, then it's different. Um, and in fact, I enjoy it, um, but I can't do it all the time. Right, it's making you a better trainer in those cases, but yes, yeah. exactly. So, um, cool. Yeah. All right, man. Well, let's let's transition a little bit because, as you know, and the listeners know from the the last couple of podcasts, I'm I'm getting a puppy this summer, and it's kind of that time of year. So I I assume that I'm not the only one that's going to have a puppy this summer, and want to want to refresh myself a little bit and go over some things with a, a new guest on the podcast and kind of get your perspective on things that you see and what you work on and how you develop dogs and just want to cover some of that stuff. So I think it'd be fun. Um, do you, I guess to start, we're talking without getting into the weeds as far as like, you know, puppies are born at different times of the year, hunting season start at different times of the year. So you always have that kind of stuff. Like my dog's going to be relatively young when hunting season rolls around it's it's three weeks old yesterday so it's going to be three four months old by the time hunting season rolls around so there's always those kind of you know variances in the age of the pups but we're talking about pups that were born this year and are going to see some level of woods time woods field time this fall do you have a do you have a high level strategy structure of what you're trying to accomplish prior to the season or and and maybe that's a bad way to frame it because I have a feeling that you're going to be you're going to base your training way more on the dog and what the dog is telling you than any some kind of a date on a calendar. Yeah, yeah. Um, their age and what time of the year, that sort of yeah. thing. Um, it all plays factor, but um, they're all different. 
Um, yeah. I've got a, uh, I've got a female right now that's, uh, I think, I can't remember how old she is. I think she was born in January, but um, okay. then I've got one that's a little younger than her. And um, the one that is a little older, she uh, she's just been, like, it's just taken longer for her to come on. And not that, I mean, she's young. So it's like, if they're a year old and then they start pointing birds, I'm still okay with that. If they yeah. just turn a year old and then start pointing them. Then I've got dogs like... Uh, Bud's daughter, uh, so Bud's one of my my two year old dogs. I've got a daughter out of him that this past spring, she'd go through an hour with five different finds, and she'd let me flush every one of them. Um, so, but that five months old, she was letting me kill birds over. Her. Um, yeah. She's the youngest I've ever had do that, and that's it, probably I've probably gotten more efficient with things. But she was sure. also very. Um, She's very intelligent. Um, she understands and grasps concepts very quick. So that's what you're trying to read with these dogs a lot of times at a young age is um, how do they learn? And then also not teaching them something that you can't recover from. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. It, it, and, but you think about it, the first and foremost thing that you need to do is get your, bir- your birds and your guns behind you, so to speak. So yeah. the intro to birds um, I start that before eight weeks old if I have them before then, or right when I get them, um, I start letting them chew on pigeons. And I legitimately, I don't care if they eat them. In fact, I like them to eat them, um, which is contrary to probably 90% of the United States. Um, they want them soft mouth from the beginning. I'm like, I don't care. Um, if they eat a bird, even when they're four years old, I well, I feed them birds, but, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I want them to be so bold and aggressive towards game that it just, there's never a care in the world of stopping around game or like, as far as, um, I, I how do I describe it? Like nothing rattles them around game. Yeah. I can, I can sense where you're going there. You don't want any, any hesitation no, really there. No, you want them to be all in and completely committed to what they're doing and not have to think about, Oh, am I in or am I out? Um, they just go to it. And so, um, yeah, that's a big part of, uh, of the early development with them. So before we move past that, what might, what might that very first time you put a pigeon on the ground, like what, what is it going to look like? Is the pigeon have locked wings, you know, yeah. all that stuff. What does it look like? Yes. Yeah, so usually at that age, uh, I'll take a lock wing pigeon and, um, take them for a walk. You know, you know, at that age, they're not running off from you. Um, they still have that invisible, um, security cord, so to speak. Um, yeah, so that's essentially what we're doing is I'm just tossing them a pigeon. I don't. I actually don't want them pointing. I want them to mouth it and pick it up and pack it around and be proud of what they have. And when they're tasting it, when they're, you know, everything is kind of infused. It sounds weird, but I just call it like infusing in when, with their DNA. And whatever's inside of them should be waking up right then just by having that contact. Sure. Um, and uh yeah so that and then when they're telling me that they can be aggressive enough to chase um and i start doing fly-offs and to where their body language is telling me that they won't hear gunfire i don't take any chances with it um i do fly-offs with them to where they're chasing and having a good old time and then i start shooting um behind my back or i might even muffle the gun into the ground or something or 
you know, so, something of the sort. So, um, but reading that dog and what they're telling you is more important than um, having a set program for them. Yeah. Uh, on the on the intro to birds, talking about dropping a pigeon for a puppy. What might a frequency look like? Is that could that be a daily thing? Would that be every other day? Or you know, <laughs> so for it just depends. Okay, so some of them you could do it. I mean, you could do it as much as daily, but I don't. I don't think you should. Um, if if a dog can't remember a bird from a week ago and that sensation, um, there's they. You know, you think about like hunting, right? If you go hunting and you hunt every weekend, if your dog's forgetting every week what a bird is or what it's to do around game, probably something wrong with them, right? And so um, I think if I get them on a bird once a week, you know, for the whole first year of their life, I mean, that's 52 times that they were in and around game. Yep. And, and they may have, in an hour, and I just usually use an hour time frame, um, but if you think about when you're actually running them at a certain age and they get into birds during an hour, well, what if they have five contacts in that hour? That's a lot of contacts for a young dog. Um, yeah. And more and more birds does not make a better dog. Um, it's what they do when they have those opportunities around birds. And so it's, uh, it's the amount that they personally need to kind of get the grasp and move forward and uh, uh, but more and more birds is not a better. And I, I'll give you an idea. Um, at one point, I, I wanted a running dog, and I, you know, we always you hear about these pointers, right? That just love to charge into the country and just tear through it. And like in an hour uh, championship, they might have one find, right? And oh, it was amazing, and they just tore through that. Well, I wanted that type of dog, and I got a dog from Frank, and she was, um, gosh, she was like twelve weeks old. And I got her back to Boise, and um, I took her for a puppy walk, and she got into um, valley quail. And we were just out walking around, you know, didn't have a leash on her. She was still connected to me. Well, that triggered in it. Um, and she went back to some, some bloodlines that really were a lot of dog early. And uh, um, I told Kim Sampson to take her for a walk <laughs> the next day, and uh, she ran off on Kim. Kim had to run her down oh. a pair of flip-flops. And uh, she thought she was going to get hit in the road. And, and, uh, oh, this, man. and I remember at five months old, this dog, um, you, you know, she could run three hours, no problem, at five months old. And everybody will tell you, oh, yeah, I've got a dog. Like, I don't want them running that much. I want them being able to give out. And her body could not give out. Um, there was another time she was young and I didn't have her collar condition. And she chased after some antelope. Next thing I know, it's four miles later i'm driving down a dirt road from my training grounds and uh she's just cantering right down the road um you know 15 16 miles an hour Jeez. like you're you know running back to the interstate and i was like <laughs> yeah all right so there, that's for that particular dog she had i had to put her on ice so to speak i had to leave her up for a while and not put her into a bunch of birds away from me because it, a bad habit was going to form that got her wound up well and, and there's so much dog to her um and it, it it's um yeah it, it can be a detriment so you, you sometimes have to do more and more birds because that dog doesn't have that much to them 
So you have to build them up to a baseline. With her, she was already starting out to where you spark that flame and you're not gonna have a dog after a while. You're always gonna be hammering on them with a the collar. And, and some of them, they don't, like they might be a hard driving dog, but they're not black hearted. And so you gotta learn to- What exactly do you mean when you say black hearted? Uh, dogs that wanna leave you and do their own thing. Okay, okay. Um, that are more selfish and self-centered. Um, gotcha. She could seem that way, but she gets consumed by things. Um, so, yeah, but th- these, uh, they all have different personalities, and knowing what they are and knowing what they need, that, that's part of reading that dog and learning from them. So. Yeah, that's, that's the, the part that's not easy. You know, you can read all the books you want, you can listen to all the podcasts you want, whatever, but reading a dog is just something that comes with experience, and there are some folks like you that are going to have a lot more experience than people like me that have one dog every six years. You know, it's just, that's different. Well, and the thing of it is, um, I'm better at reading certain bloodlines because I, I know those blood, like, so this, you, you see similar characteristics continually coming up. So, um, a lot of the breeders like Jerry, for instance, Jerry knows the dogs through and through. And when he sees certain things come out of those puppies at an early age, he's reading them. He's looking for them. Um, that's essentially what we're trying to do. So you get better with your bloodlines. You get better with what you're expecting and the stamp that's coming out of them. Um, and if I had like, if I was breeding as much as a lot of those guys and they, and I wasn't seeing what I should have been, I'd be questioning things a bit. Oh, okay. What's going on here? And am I getting the right dog? Um, or are they not throwing what I need? And so, um, Kim Sampson and Rich Heaton, they, they do a lot of stuff out of the strike line. And, and the strike line is through a dog called Silver Strike. And he was, I think, a 12-time champion on Wild Birds. He was an, a West Coast dog. Um, and he, uh, gosh, he's been dead, I think, 35 years. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so, but Rich did a couple of frozen semen breedings um, about 15 years ago. And he got some tremendous dogs out of them. But... Um, they have a similar type of dog coming out of every litter. So they're, they're not overly strong-headed, but they're, they've got enough willpower to dive into the country um, at an all-age race. Um, but they have a similar type of dog that they're constantly getting around uh, with their character around game and personality in the kennel. And that's similar to what Jerry's kind of getting as well, is um, he's, he's breeding a similar type of dog um, for not just the hunter, but for something that he can work. And he knows what they're going to be around game. And um, so those are just examples. Um, another one that I think is getting it right now is Talmadge Smedley down in Utah. Um, and I'm not trying to leave out, you know, short hairs or other breeds. It's, uh, I'm just not in that world um, as much. Um, but that you're looking for a type of dog um, to be consistently produced when you have these litters so that you know what to work with. Sure. Um, yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. Going back to the intro to bird thing again, just I'm, I'm thinking about this through the eyes of maybe somebody listening that maybe hasn't done this before. The method that you talked about is kind of the method that I've, I used and have seen used. The one thing that we think about or we hear is, you know, when you're, when you're doing anything like intro to birds, intro to gun, you're very intently watching the dog because you want to watch the reaction to the bird or the gunshot. 
looking for any kind of a sign that the dog is uncomfortable, unsure, that sort of thing. What are you looking for when, when that happens? What do you want to see? What do you don't want to see? Uh, zero apprehension. Um, zero apprehension to anything. And so you think about your environment when you're working with them. You're trying to keep it um, very um, what's it, sterile. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah, just, not a lot of noise. Yeah. Well, and, and, not, and by noise, by noise, I don't even mean real noise. I mean like yeah, distractions. Like, yeah, exactly. Um, you want to keep the main thing the main thing, and um, yeah, because they're learning how to focus, and when they focus, they learn. And so, at that young age, that's what you're shooting for is um, a pup that can learn through exposure um, for you showing them something, and then whatever's inside of them starts kind of taking over and forming. Um, so with that stuff, that, that early, um, introduction to birds, I'm looking for certain reactions. And so we don't bring in gunfire until we see those reactions. Um, and, and we're certain that, um, it's what we want out of them. Um, so, you know, the, the whole chasing like gangbusters or, you know, just, like all in type of mentality and they just want to give a lot of chase or are fired up about it to where anything in the background, whatever that bird outweighs anything that could be going on. It always outweighs it. Um, and that's what you want. You want a dog that is so consumed by a bird or the situation of that, that the, you could have the world coming to an end and, (laughs) It would just never phase them. Until um, that bird gets out of sight, the dog doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Until they realize, hey, I can't catch this. this yeah. uh, you know, so it, it's, um, yeah, uh, that you, you just don't want any apprehension. And, and a lot of times um, we don't have, I don't think we have, but when we do proper exposure through like puppy walks and things, and they get pretty bold, they have an understanding that um, the two of you together do a lot of things and, then you get them around birds and they, um, if you want to call it boldness or anything, that kind of brings out of them. It's very seldom that we see a pup that really just doesn't like birds or game. Now, um, I have seen it where people wait on that. They get a pup and then they just bring it into the house and they don't do proper introduction. Well, you miss a window and you have a window opportunity to get them introduced to things. And when you miss that, um, it can be gone. And you may not get it back. So that, that part that people always think, oh, well, I'll, I'll train them later. Well, you shouldn't have to train them. And, and, in fact, that's why I said if you did it once a week, you know, if you have a buddy that's got some pigeons or something or, or some quail for them to chase or something like that, and then, or even just take them for walks, you know, First and foremost, if the dog handles for you, which you're starting off with your puppy walks, that's the biggest thing. It's coming and going with you, and that's what they're learning during those puppy walks. And so if they're doing that, then they're forward thinking. Um, and it, it simplifies their life quite a bit. So Yeah. Segwaying a little bit on onto those puppy walks, that's another thing that I'm pretty curious about. You know, a puppy walk, I, most people can kind of envision that you're you've got your you know eight nine ten week old puppy you're going to take it out for a walk and like you said you know at that point they're usually going to stick pretty close to you they've kind of got that they've got got that built into them are you are you doing anything on those walks to try to structure 
the the way that the dog runs or are you, are you given any cues yeah. to make to try to build that bond from the start yeah um turning them you're you're actually learning how to turn them so they want to go with you naturally at that age um yep. so it's a really good time to uh learn how to turn them um basically getting their attention uh, if they stop to kind of clean out or something um and they're looking at you a lot of times they look right to your eyes um turn directions Go 90 degrees in the opposite direction. And Are you saying anything? Nope. Not saying anything. Just turn, turning your body. Yep. Turn your body. They learn to go off the front of you. It's the same thing with a horse. You know, they, they see that horse's head, and they know where the front is. So that's why, like, on the horseback, and not, not to always compare that for a hunter, but um, when they see that front of that horse, they, they know where to go um, and can can learn the pattern from that. Even a hunting dog needs to have a pattern. Um and they need to come and go with you. This stuff behind your back and going behind you, that doesn't work. Um, they need to make forward progress because when they're making that, their, their mind is right and it's simplified. And then all they got to do is focus on birds and hunting. Um, so you're really trying to just... You're just really trying to simplify their life as much as possible within the realm that you're in. Yeah. So That's one of the things that never ceases to amaze me you know i haven't spent six years now with my dog and we primarily hunt rough grouse and woodcock in thick cover and just i mean he's always been a dog that he wants to be with me he hunts for me and we've got a we've got a good bond like that in that he's always keeping track of me it just i don't even know how they do it to cast off into the woods disappear and again with a lot of consistency my dog he's he's going to be coming back through yeah. at some point. Yeah. And I don't even know how they keep track of you out there. It's crazy. Well, um, I mean, you, you think about their, their senses are so heightened. Yeah. You know, it's, um, that's, that's their mode of communication. So, um, yeah, it, it, between their hearing and a lot of, if you guys are running bells on a dog, yeah, that's even harder to me uh, for them yeah. to keep track of you without talking to them. Um, now it, with the puppies the reason i don't talk to them as much when we're in the field is i want them to just key off my body language um and that's how we're, we're learning to turn and go with us but uh when they get older i, I talk to them quite a bit more and uh sure uh, and then at a certain age i kind of i kind of shut up and uh, only talk to them when i need to kind of thing um but i you know for our, someone on foot 99 percent of the time um I, I talk to them more than most people do um, by singing to them, similar to like a horseback um, okay. field trialer. Because I, I don't like holding my dogs in, but and the, the, you'll see these people on online getting into pissing matches over, oh, my dog runs a 1,000 yards. and Well, I don't need one of these dogs getting a 1,000 yards in on me, um, unless, it, <laughs> unless we're really just not finding birds, um, and then they tear in there a little bit deeper. But... Um, a productive dog can be in that um well in the grouse woods in a 100 to 200 yard range um in even open country you know 500 at most and you you, you gotta they don't they gotta earn that right to be out there sure um yep. and so um a lot of them they make a thousand yard cast how often are they looking to look for me you know and and if I know that dog well enough, especially if it's Brooke, um, she may not come back for me for a while. <laughs> and uh, 
uh, yeah, so that, it's just knowing that dog and knowing how to manage them when you need to um, and that pattern. But, um, yeah, I don't like them just running just to run. they got to run with purpose. So Yeah. So we, we hit on intro to gun, intro to birds there, and those are things that, you know, those are obviously, like you and I are talking, I mean, those are covered time and time again over and over again but you really can never never break that down enough and it's it's always good to get somebody else's perspective on it but branching off that a little bit let's talk basic exposure you know we've got a we've got a bird dog pup coming home into the house and not necessarily everything around the house but like crates kennels chain gang that sort of stuff how do you how do you do that is i imagine with your setup a little bit some of that really good exposure is just kind of built into what you're doing every day. That's going to be different from, from like me where I don't, I'm not running that kind of a setup, yeah. but how do you do that with your pups? So, um, I, I don't know the, the necessary age that I put them on a chain gang. I put, I put some of them on at eight weeks old. I've, um, I don't know how important it is to have them on that young. Um, but your chain gang needs to be set up in my opinion, needs to be set up in a certain manner at a certain length. Um, okay. And, you know, basically you're, you're doing a lot of things by clearing their mind on a chain gang, but you're also, uh, and, I, and we've thought about this, or I've talked about this uh, recently with some people, but uh, we've got a lot of snares out in this part of the country from trappers. If a dog gets caught in it and they resist it and start pulling them back, they'll kill themselves. Um, a chain gang actually helps with that. Um, if a dog gets caught in it, and now with all the tracking devices that we have, um, we can usually get to them. Well, yeah, they can feel that pull and stop. And, and stop, yes. They learn how to turn pressure off. That's essentially what it's doing. And so at a young age, like I've got, um, what is Evie? Evie's like four months old, I think. And then um, Bell's like six months, I think. Um, but they've started off on a chain gang from about um, three and a half months old on. And, and I may only put them on for a couple minutes, and then the next day I may put them on for a couple more minutes. Um, in fact, what I utilize it up here for is I put all the dogs, um, I take them out of their runs to clean the run, and I put them on a chain gang. And so, you know, and I just take my time. Um, fill, I dump all the waters out and fill new water every day. And um, But you think about that, like, that's still training. That's them learning to put pressure and take it off. And um, and that's a lot of the stuff that I was reminded of when I was down in Texas with, with Sonny and uh, Mike Miller and um, and a few of the others down there. Um, Mark Wagner was down there. And um, they all utilize this stuff a lot. Um, and so it, it was a big reminder of, you know, using a tool. Um, so, yeah, chain gang and then a crate. Um, I put them in a crate and uh, I'll feed them in a crate. I'll do all these little things to where it's not a negative. Making uh, it positive. Yeah, and and even that, like, every, you'll see people that are always talking about um, positive training and stuff. And mm-hmm. um, I don't overanalyze it that way because, you know what, it's, training's not always going to be positive. You're going to have, you know, you're going to get checked at certain times, and that's okay. You just got to mentally be able to come away from it and, and yep. not hold it uh, or harbor it so um but just getting them used to all different scenarios um when rue was a puppy i had a little subaru car at that time and i just put a crate in there and every time i went somewhere he was in it every time i could take him for a walk i walked him 
um, you know, just anything like that um, to get their mind stimula stimulated and then keying off of you. Um, that that's a big thing, and and then they also learn that a crate isn't a bad thing or chain gang isn't a bad thing. Um, I, I vividly remember uh, when I brought Patch home, um, and I had her in a crate by herself, and it sounded like a coyote dying in there. I mean, it, uh, it was <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. just. And she, I looked at the crate. And her jaw or her teeth were up on it, and she was just squalling and squealing and carrying on. And I thought, oh, geez, what did I get myself into? And um, but I put her in a crate with Rue was pretty young at that time, and I put them in the crate together every night, and that's what they slept in. And um, and then all day they're out in a yard, and so after a while, it wasn't a big deal. They ate in that crate. Right, she and, got over it. Yeah, she got over it, and so. They need to look at this. They they need their own space, just like a person is. We all need our own space every once in a while, and um, that's a they they need it to let down. They need it, um, you know, mentally, just as we do. Um, and so, all of these tools can help give them the space they need. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it start. You, and that's that's part of um, not overdoing certain things and not thinking that more is better. It's just gradually building it up. Um, so you're you're creating a foundation that doesn't fail. Um, so you know, okay, that dog's fine on a chain game. All right, I know it can ride in a crate. Wherever we go, it doesn't throw up anymore. Uh, you know, or it doesn't get sick. It doesn't mess. Um, so those are all things that you're working through. So. Yeah, that, I mean, the reason I bring those up is because again, I've I've had success doing that stuff, and it they can seem simple, like especially the chain gang one. That's almost like, and my dog didn't spend a lot of time on a chain gang when he was young because I only had the one dog. I didn't spend a ton of time around in situations like that. Yeah, this time around, I'm actually looking forward to having having two dogs and being able to put them out on on stakeouts basically and maybe working with one dog having the other dog watch be patient and you're maximizing your time as a trainer there right you know you're just because your dog's sitting there on the stakeout doesn't mean he's not getting valuable exposure or training they're to a certain still, extent what they're doing is what they're learning and uh, uh yeah what they're doing is what they're learning and so even being on a chain gang and watching visually having um something in front of them they're still getting pictures, you know, it's like they're taking Polaroids, um, on yeah. there. and, um, so yeah, that's, that's a, a big piece to that puzzle. And, um, yeah, it, it, it'll help a lot with those pup. And I even, um, I was telling a few, uh, clients about this. They said, if you get a stakeout or a chain, like you can just make one. I said, put it in your yard or someplace mm-hmm. like back near your house. And I said, um, if you're kicking back and barbecuing or working on a project and, you know, put the dog on it, have them in and around you. They don't have to be on you. In fact, it's better that they're not on you, that they're okay being near you. Yep. Um, and so the, the hardest ones are when you're breaking a dog and they have to be on you. They can't just stand there. They can't just be separated from you. That's a really tough dog to get to learn um, because any type of pressure, any twitch, any cue, then they want to glue themselves to you, and it's uh, yeah. Gosh, that that goes even in the collar introduction, um, and uh, the worst thing I've ever seen is when you bump a dog with a 
with the e-collar on with stimulus and then they come immediately to you and, and they don't want yeah i don't want that i don't want you coming to me uh, i just want to get your attention so um that's it they need to be okay with being away from you yeah i know i once i once the come july once that pup comes home i fully intend to use the I've been actually using the stakeout with my dog Hartley a lot. Yeah. I've been working in my garage and just put him out there. And, you know, even that, like I, I didn't do it a whole lot when he was younger. So he, it hasn't been like the easiest transition. But the second you'll put him on there, he he, he thinks we're going for a run or something, yeah. you know, like he's always anticipating. And But once he realizes, hey, you know, dad's working on the garage, but we're not going anywhere, then he just lays down and, you know, that's nice. And what you're doing is you're teaching him to be calm-minded and not get hyped yeah. up. Um a dog that's overly hyped up can't think. Um, in um, so, if you think about that, like if they're if they're amped or hyped, it's just like us. If you're a hyped individual before, say, a sport, you're you're probably not going to be listening to Slayer, or you shouldn't be listening to Slayer because that's going to put your arousal <laughs> over the top. But I want to though. You want to, but you're like, <laughs> you know, you need to think clearly, and um, you, you, yeah, you know, I I remember as a kid, I was like before some of the wrestling matches i'd i'd listen to rob zombie or something like that and uh i don't know yeah. why but um i thought it was cool at the time and <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is cool it, it is cool it is cool um and like but i had to sometimes i had to get up for matches that were you know you'd, yeah. you'd be five or six matches deep for a day um at a freestyle greco roman tournament or or something and you're exhausted you don't have the energy and i was one of those kids i never ate during the day i just I felt sick if I did. So, um, you know, that music would get you up. But as I got older and going into cross country and track races, it was one of the detriments was getting heightened. Um, it's almost like you already ran that race and you'll hear a lot of the, yeah. And you'll hear a lot of trainers, um, talk about dogs that they've already run their brace, uh, meaning like a trial, like they ran their brace in the box because they weren't calm enough leading up to it yeah. yeah so um a calm mind and a clear mind going into a situation goes a long way so i'm glad you went there because that was one of the main things i wanted to ask you about because my dog he's he's good but i think i put i think i put some unnecessary excitement and maybe like some you know just kind of that amped up into him because that was me honestly like my dog is a reflection of myself my first dog six years ago, I was excited. I was nervous. I had all those feelings. And yeah. and I know that, you know, Hartley kind of embodies that a little bit. But aside from some of the things we've been talking about, what are the other ways that you go about trying to bring calm, you know, a calmness in your kennel and in your dogs? And how do you put that into them? Well, I can get rather excitable. Um, so <laughs> yeah, I me to, too. I've had to retrain myself on things of, uh, not doing idiotic things um, or like <laughs> yelling and hollering or something like that because the dog's barking. It's like, the, you know, the dog's barking in the kennel. Get the water hose, spray them. If they keep barking. Do something else. Yeah. yeah. Um, put a bark collar on them. Bark collars actually help. I And I, I say this, um, I, I've had to do this to calm down some dogs, but um, just put a bark collar on them. Use yeah. those. Um, my mannerisms being almost just kind of monotoned um but when i go and i put my hands on them um every one of them is going to be different the way that you approach them and so um the way that you put your hands on them and that touch um it means a lot to them that's your individual um moment with them and so 
my moment with Rue doesn't need much. I just honestly like he he doesn't need a whole lot in my kennel. Um, he and he's the oldest. Um, and but Buddy, when I let Buddy out, and he's only what two? He's barely two and a half. No, he's not even two and a half. He's two years old. And uh, when I let him out, he bounds right up on me. You know, puts his paws up on my waist and nuzzles his head right into my hands. And he wants to see me. And so, you know, instead of me, like, dominating him and pushing him back in or something, I just just love up on him a little bit. And then, um, but he's not carrying on and being crazy in the kennel before I come to yep. him. And so if he was, and you know, you'd use something to be able to correct it. But if they're smart, you don't have to be harsh about it. And um, and I, the, the, the water, being able to spray water at him, is a great object um, to get their attention more than anything. Um, I've seen people hotwire kennels for dogs that were climbing. I've seen them do a lot of different things for barking, crazy barkers. Um, but if you think about it, um, if a dog's consistently worked, um, if they're consistently worked, uh, their body and their mind, then they're probably going to be pretty calm. Um, they're yep. not going to go over the top. Yeah, and that's where I circle back to my dog. He's he has, you know, you know where he's, you know what kennel he's out of, and and he has the on off switch. Yeah. We get our exercise, we get our work in, and he's a saint around the house. Yeah. Really, to be honest, I mean he's he's really good around the house, and he's in the house all the time. He's a family dog, but it's just one of those things that I I look at. You know, where where were my shortcomings last time around? Because yeah. I want to I want to do it better next time. You know. Well, and um, I, I've said this a few times, but. Um, this is a 50 year endeavor, you know, for a lot yeah. of us, um, this yeah. is not looked at as like one dog or anything like that. It's, um, wherever we're at, it doesn't matter if you're like people, I, I actually hate the term pro trainer when people talk to me. I don't, I still don't think of myself of that. Um, it's kind of a label. Yeah. And there's, gosh, I'm very low man on a totem pole in my opinion. I've got so much to learn. Um, and I'm excited about it, but if we're not learning, we're complacent. And absolutely, whether that's learning a dog, learning how they work, how they think, how they go about things, and um, and then you've got a set of tools, and you're constantly learning application of tools. So what one dog needs might be the flick of fingers, right? Another dog might need a two by four. Um, and so you're you're constantly learning on. Okay, what do they need at this time? Because that, that high pressure that you might have to put on a dog can always drop, and it should always yeah. drop. And so you're not always just cranking on them, cranking on them. Um, you, you can bring it down, and that's what you should be having. So um, in their mind, they understand what it means. And so yeah. it's comprehension. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know, you mentioned Jerry Coulter and he's I obviously have learned a lot from him getting getting a dog from him and we'll be getting my second now and yeah. that's one of those things where I I see the way that is you know, I've sensed getting my first dog, I've seen the way that he acts around his dogs. I mean, he is like such a calming presence that when he puts his hand on a dog's and he'll tell you this all day, you know, it's all about you know, he's managing his own behaviors and, and making sure to not wind the dog up any more so than it might be, you know, naturally, that sort of thing. But that's all important. And it's easy to overlook that as a as a first-time oh, bird dog owner. Yeah, and a lot of times we don't even recognize what we're doing is getting them right up. Um, we just, we get excited, you know, and mm-hmm. gosh, I've been there a lot. Um, you got to make a lot of mistakes 
in this. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I remember the one time I, I actually was down in Alabama and I was working for George Tracy, and we were at the Gulf Coast Championship, and we were outright winning it. And we had a dog named uh, Sugar Knoll Warpaint on the ground, and um, uh, Duke was his name. And God, we were like 45 minutes in, and I think he just had his his second or third find and I and um and I was scouting and I had him and I was getting amped up because I knew what was going on and George leans down from his horse and he goes settle in he goes you're going to get him cranked up and that dog did not need to be he needed to be level and uh yeah and I to this day I mean uh gosh I think that was seven years ago six or seven years ago uh to this day I, I think about that and it's like um, you allow them to do what they need to do without you creating too much excitement. Some dogs you need to create more for, but you got to figure that out along the way. Um, if I would have, yeah, no, uh, Duke ended up winning that championship. So it was, uh, that was a great day. Um, yeah. it was, it was very uh, enjoyable, but, um, yeah, I, I still remember that. So you just, you got to know, and, and that's learning your dog. That's learning to read yeah. them and not, just treating them as a pet but allowing them to be who they are a little yeah. too cool yeah. well the the one more thing i want to i want to dive into a little bit before we before we wrap this up but i want to talk about we're on this train talking about puppies we've talked about some exposure things but i want to cover maybe our first few times getting this dog on wild birds and you know maybe we talk about it from just the dog and the bird maybe there's a gun involved you know some things yeah. to be some things to consider there but at at the very you know ground level what are you looking at and how are you approaching this dog's first exposure on wild birds obviously you're bringing the dog into the into the woods or field we're hoping that it's going to find birds what are you looking for how are you approaching that situation um so depending on the dog uh, it might be a client dog um and i need to make sure that they get into birds in a certain manner and this is something i learned from uh, kim sampson um and so she would uh kind of piggyback off a broke dog so she had um a um, couple really really tremendous uh, wild bird dogs and she would bring client dogs in with them and let them get in and around game and start figuring it out so you're, you almost have training wheels on but you're you're assuring that they are going to get in the game now if you don't have that you got to put the boot leather in because um and, and you got you personally have to know those birds a lot so yeah because you've got limited yes energy in your pup right exactly so um it's putting them on the ground and letting them knock and chase birds and these and hopefully they start pointing them um and you know i there's like i said about the windows thing there's certain windows that can open and close and so you really want to make sure that they get in around birds so they start learning how to um independently hunt them and and um they they're excited by that um so there's a, a guy named Scott Jordan who's out your ways in the Minneapolis area. Um, Scott re- reiterated something to me last year when uh, um, I got a chance to you know talk to him about stuff. But um, he he kills a lot of birds for young dogs. He kills a lot of birds for them because what he's trying to stamp home to them is um, you make it almost blatant. You point them, I kill them. And um, so I had learned that from him, and I brought that back. And uh, Mitch Hurt lets me work a few dogs while he's guiding. Um, 
Um, and I, I do the same kind of principle with them is uh, you point them, I kill them. And uh, I did that in the fall with one of his young uh, true confidence dogs. And, uh, and by the winter, he took that dog down to South Texas and he was like, he'd go through the day um, and have four covey finds which doesn't seem like a lot, but if it's four out of nine total covey finds that you and your guiding partner found, four covey finds is a good amount for a dog that wasn't even two years old. And he was, and he was standing broke through most of that work, if, if not all of it. Um, so we talk about that window, or, or that, that's that part that Scott reassured me. He's like, make it blatant. Kill that bird. Don't, don't just wing it. Don't just do this. Um, and I... I mean, I know for a fact he'll powder them, right? I mean, that bird barely gets off the ground, and he's dropped them, and that dog's on them. Um, and so then they're they're connecting the complete process, yes, all the just, dots. Yeah. You just cycled yeah. it for them, and so we we don't. I don't worry about hard mouth. I don't worry about any of that stuff. First and foremost, you got to be a bird dog, and then if you're a bird dog and you want them, and maybe you eat a bird or two, well, later I can break you. I can break you steady to wing and shot, and we can. I can just stop you from chewing up a bird. And once I have that dialed in, well, we're okay. But the more you want them, the more you you know want to maybe chomp on them, you're probably going to be more dog. And some that can outweigh a lot of uh, apprehension or different things that may come up in that dog's life too. So you're just making a blatant cycle of what their job is when they're on the ground. Another way to look at it might be that you're trying to get this dog to fully express as much as of its genetic potential as possible yeah. because at the end of the day, once that happens, once that occurs on the front end, everything else is obedience and training it. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I look at it kind of similar to the hounds. So you think about a hound, um, we call it, you know, like one-track mind, and it kind of, you know, goes to that, but... That's essentially what a pointer needs, or a bird dog needs to have too, is um, um, every ounce of their being wants that prey. Uh, it's predator and prey. And um, uh, so when every ounce of them wants it and then can keep you in mind of killing birds for them to get that, then it's a good situation. But um, with all of our Penrace stuff that's come about, we've, we don't... Um, We've kind of lost, in my opinion, we've kind of lost certain things with um, the old school style of wild bird dogs. And um, you got to make sure you connect those dots. And so I, I always use that analogy. Well, if, if you want a good hound, there's no substitute to a coon, right? If you want a good coon hound, you have to get them on coon. It means that's a wild animal. Um, if you want a good cat dog, there's no substitute. You got to get them on, on a cat. Um, on, and when people tell me, oh, I got them on live birds, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense, and we can use that, but uh, wild birds are the end-all, be-all, in my opinion, um, and that that's, uh, yeah, that's a big part to me, so that that's truly what it is, um, so, yeah, cool. I don't know if that answers what... <laughs> No, it does, man. It does. It's I. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation very much. We could obviously go on, but uh, we'll we'll call it we'll call it a show at this point, and we'll make it a point to have you back on and be. Uh, hopefully, our paths will cross at some point. I'd love to connect with you yeah, and absolutely. record one in person sometime. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I know last year you came out to Montana, right? 
Uh, that was two years ago. Two years ago, last year I was in North Dakota. This year, this year, kind of working on it. But yeah, if I uh, if I head west, it'd, it'd be uh, it'd be awesome yeah. to meet up. Of course. Let me know. Um, yeah. I'm not sure when I'm going to be going back to Boise, but I need to have about a month and a half back there before I go to Texas. So probably in October at some point, um, and uh, it'd be good to catch up with you. And, uh, yeah. You know, just it, you, like I said, I, I learn as much from other people and seeing how they work with dogs. And um, I mean, you're always learning different body language and tools to use with your own. So that's why I rely on Kim Sampson and uh, Rich Eaton and. Um, Frank so much is because I don't I really don't know that much I mean I, I really don't know that much I, I just it, you're always learning and so um, that's the beauty of this so that's the way I approach it I mean that's why I love having these conversations man and I, I appreciate how much you reference your mentors and stuff because I'm I'm the same way you know I wouldn't be I wouldn't have the knowledge that I had right now if it weren't for the people that I've known met talked to learn from i mean again if you're not learning you're not growing yeah um and kind of you know not to retrace but we we were talking earlier about like training for the public and i uh, yeah i'd never been around weimariners before like not much i i told you my great-grandfather had one but i never was really around it and i got one in for training and it took me like i was beating my head against the wall for three weeks i was like what is going why can't i get through to this animal so I called uh, Guy Malacone down in Phoenix, and Guy works, um, I mean, he instills, if you want to call it prey drive or whatever, he instills that in dogs, he brings it out of them, he makes them a killer, and he has to because a lot of the dogs that he gets might be show dogs, or you yeah. know, or show and field, or, or Weimariners, and that's what his primary focus is, is Weimariners, and oh gosh, he, I, t- I got off the phone with him one day, immediately went out into the field uh, by back pasture and I started working that dog and then I reported within a half hour to an hour with him and he uh, he says to a mutual friend he's like huh I guess he's a little motivated I was like well I said yeah I said I, I, I don't like not being able to get through to an animal you know it's you're not getting through to an athlete and I said I feel like I'm not doing them justice if I if I'm not trying yeah and uh, so relying on others that are really good at it um and we've got a guy up here named Butch Nelson. Butch is a wealth of knowledge, and he he's uh, over in Denton. And I, I look forward to meeting up with him because of um, his years and years of training. And Ike Todd used to work for him. Um, that's how Ike, I believe that's when Ike started, was working for Butch in the summers. And then, uh, and then Austin Turley um, has worked with him. Um, and you know you just you're constantly learning more um yeah it's the same as a dog if you're just saying in your pocket you're probably not gaining as much as you could yeah so um yeah it's 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 yeah it's fun to see that stuff but, yeah all right yeah that's good stuff man no i i really do i appreciate you taking the time and it's been it's been fun chatting with you and getting to know you a little bit more but obviously we'll be in touch and uh, I'll let you get back to the dogs, man. Thanks again. Hey, where can people where can people find out more about what you do and, and see your dog? Um, so Born to Run Kennels is the uh, Instagram name. Uh, Born to Run Kennels at Gmail is the email. Um, those are probably the best two ways to go. I do have a Facebook page, and it's just Born to Run Kennels. Um, I have um, a website domain. I don't have a website. Um, I, I actually don't like that stuff. Um, I, I really... I, 
I know it's uh, what stuff that we need, but um, if you contact me on either Instagram or um, or through Facebook on that or um, through email, I, I I try to be prompt um, and get back to people and, and give them the time of the day. So yeah, people can get a hold of you. That's good. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, all right, man. We'll let you get back to the dogs. Thanks again. Have a good day. Take care, Ryan. See ya. All right, that does it for this episode of the Project Open Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. A quick reminder that the podcast is brought to you by Onyx Hunt, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, CZ USA, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast for your chance to win the Project Upland Podcast giveaway. And head over to projectupland.com for more of the Upland birds, dogs, guns, and gear that you love. Until we see you back here for the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. This is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.